morning we'll be in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. I ask you to turn there now. If you don't know where the book of Acts is, it's on the, the right-hand side of your Bible. Um, if you are not familiar with the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the, the, the Gospels, the, 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 the biographical and theological stories about Jesus' life. And then we have the book of Acts, which, in my opinion, is, is always a treat. I really enjoy the book of Acts. It's, it's so fun to, to study uh, personally, but I think it's, it's even more fun to preach, right? Uh, the book of Acts is, is simply uh, the church uh, being the church in the most simple and the, but the most profound terms. Um, but throughout my Christian life, I, I've heard the following from a lot of people. You know, if we could just be like the Acts church, then more people would want to come to see what this Jesus is all about. We should be like the Acts church. I want to confess to you that I just think there's a lot of confusion about what the book of Acts even is. Uh, even in my own heart this week, so I, I, I feel like I go back and forth. Is, is the book of Acts just simply a story? Is it, is it like a to-do list? These are the things that we should do. Um, and, and so I, I've heard this over and over again from, from different people and in different seasons of life. No matter where I've lived, I've heard this complaint. And, and even, even I have had this complaint before. Man, we should just, we should just be like them, right? And while this complaint is genuine, I think sometimes we just go about it the wrong way. I fear that over the course of my life that I'm not necessarily doing the wrong things, but perhaps I'm asking the wrong questions. And so this morning as we look at the church in Acts, I think the question that we ask is really, really important. So often we look at the church in Acts and we just sort of try to copy and paste. We ask the question, okay, what should the church do? And it's not a bad question, but I think we should be asking a better question. And that question is, what should the church be like? What should the church be like? When a non-believer meets a Christian, what what impression should they receive? What what should a Christian, and indeed, what should an entire church be like? I think we see this temptation to copy and paste a lot in, in the realm of business. Um, it, it, often you'll see like uh, a, a, a business sort of insider article uh, about what this one business did to put themselves over the top. You know, this one change that they made, this one hiring of the CEO that changed everything. And so what happens? The, what happens is that other businesses try to just copy and paste this one thing expecting the same results. And I think that's logical, right? I think, I think that makes sense. I think it makes sense to do that. But we all know deep down that it, it's not that simple. It, it doesn't work. It's very rare that in our very complicated and nuanced world that one change can, can breed such great results. And so we know that it doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? But it's because these articles don't really understand that business practices don't happen in a vacuum, right? Business practices happen uh, because of years and years of market research and hard leadership decisions. You can't simply expect to copy and paste a, a huge leadership decision. It seems that business leaders fail to understand what Jesus believed and, and Jesus often preached. That if you want to change the fruit, you have to change what's underneath the soil. It's not a matter of copy and paste. This has been a difficult season uh, for all of us, but I'm grateful that God has continued to move both in our church and in in, in my life individually. Uh, God has been teaching me a lot lately about discipleship. Uh, I find that you don't really know how incompetent you are at a subject until you actually try to go out and do it, and even more so when you go out and try to teach others how to do it. And and as I meet up with college-age students, I've been forced to ask some, some really tough questions. 
Throughout my life, I've heard so many sermons on discipleship. I've read books about discipleship. You'd think I would know what discipleship is. And yet, as I sit across from from a 20-year-old, sometimes I wonder, do I really know what discipleship is? Uh, Shout out to the Geneva students sitting over there. I just want you to know how incompetent I am. But, um, you know, I have to ask some really tough questions. You know, what do I want these students to be like in four years? They come to us, and I'm so thankful for it. I'm so grateful to God. But what do I actually want to be different about them when, I, when they leave me in four years? How do I go about doing that? What really is a disciple of Jesus? What are the marks of someone who truly loves him? As I've studied Jesus, as I've studied his life and his teaching recorded in the Gospels, like I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I've come to the conclusion that a disciple is not merely someone who just does the right Christian things. A disciple is not someone who wakes up every morning and checks evangelism, prayer, and the word off a list. No, a disciple is these things, but a disciple is more than that. There is a deeper, deeper need for a disciple. A disciple is not someone who marks things off a list, but a disciple is someone who stubbornly emulates Jesus. Someone who stubbornly emulates Jesus. A disciple is someone who reorders their entire life by teaching what Jesus taught, and by doing what Jesus did. A disciple, that word in itself, is, is, is also translated apprentice. An, a, an apprentice is someone who sees the way that a, a rabbi or a teacher is living their lives and saying, I want to be like that. A disciple doesn't ha- isn't created by doing things and checking things off a list. A disciple is, is created by a love that the disciple has for Jesus Christ. A disciple is not someone who who has two masters, but can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A disciple is someone who looks themselves in the mirror and says, it's no longer about you, it's about the Lord. And so what I'm saying is that someone who follows the way of Jesus is a lot more like espresso uh, than coffee. Uh, Stay with me, I'm losing many of you, I can already tell. Um, I'm someone who's very familiar with buying both espresso and coffee. I, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I should like espresso. Like if I'm a coffee person, you should like espresso. And so I order coffee, and then I also order this tiny little cup of espresso, and I get really excited to, to try to like espresso all over again, and it's, it's just so bitter, guys. It's just not good. Uh, espresso, I don't know why anyone drinks espresso on its own. But if you have espresso and coffee... What's the difference? What's the biggest difference when you see that huge cup of coffee and that tiny cup of espresso? Well, very simply, in a word, it's concentration. Espresso is smaller and yet much more concentrated than coffee. There's a strength to it. There's a power. There's, there's a purity that comes from simply removing the hot water. And when I think about this illustration, I think it's a perfect picture of discipleship. When we meet Jesus, we have a concentration of who he is inside of us. And yet our hearts are divided, if we're honest. We want to be a disciple, but we also want to be successful. We want to be a disciple, but we also want to be a good parent. We, also, we want to be a disciple, but we want to be many things that on their own aren't bad things. But a disciple is someone who follows Jesus and is slowly but surely removing the hot water from their lives. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus and is slowly but surely looking less and less like themselves and more and more like Jesus. And so I think that's really important ground to lay as we open up the book of Acts. Because these are people that are not sharing the gospel in a vacuum. No, they are sharing the gospel out of a life that is lived in dedication in following Jesus. 
And so if we try to proclaim Jesus without prioritizing Jesus, we've already lost the battle. We're looking at the church in Acts as those who stubbornly follow Jesus. Specifically in this text, in verses 11 through 26, we see that these disciples, these Jesus followers, they proclaim Jesus because they had prioritized Jesus. They proclaim Jesus because they had prioritized Jesus. And so, with that being said, let's read Acts uh, 3. Let's begin in verse 1, just so that we, we understand the, the context of, of, of what's being said. So, uh, as the wind fights me, I will get to Acts 3 eventually, and I will read starting uh, in verse 1. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, uh, the Word of God says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health and the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Amen. This is the word of God. So before we look at these verses in detail, let's just make sure that we know where we are. According to the first few verses of the entire book of Acts, we know that this was a book written by Luke as a part two of his gospel. I was shocked when I found that out for the first time, that Luke is part one and Acts is actually part 
2. And we know that, just like we learned last week, that at the end of Luke, Jesus charges the, the, the apostles to go and make disciples. It's what we heard in, in, in Matthew last week. Go and make disciples. And so Luke, pick, Luke, and so Luke picks up the story with a the theme verse for Acts. He, he lays out the entire narrative with one verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see something really beautiful in the book of Acts. We see a, a parallel from the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, what happens? Well, Jesus starts from the surrounding areas, and he works his way into Jerusalem. There's a verse in Luke where he, where he says he, he stiffened his face. He, he made his way to Jerusalem. He was a man on his a mission. His mission was to suffer many things, die, and rise three days later for the sins of the entire world. But now in the book of Acts, we see a great unfolding of this. We're not going from the ends of the earth to Jerusalem. No, we're going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's really what, talk, what Acts 1-8 is talking about. So from a bird's eye view, really zoomed out, we know that the whole book of Acts is asking one really vital question. How did this thing called Christianity, whatever you want to call it, following Jesus, how did the gospel go from being local to being global? How do we get to the point where we are in western Pennsylvania, across the sea from where this was written? How do we get to that point? Do you ever ask that question? And so that's what the book of Acts is all about. And so now the first few chapters in Acts is really action-packed. The Holy Spirit descends, and, and the early church goes from being this idea that Jesus had to this robust and concrete group of people. Peter and John, they go from being guys who were just with Jesus to being filled with the same power of Jesus. We see miracles and preaching over and over again. And in fact, this is, this is Luke's entire structure. We see it over and over again. There's, there's a, a really miraculous thing that happens, and then Peter preaches and helping people understand it. That's what we see in our passage in front of us. And so it's important before we get into Peter's sermon that we understand what has happened in verses 1 through 10. We begin with Peter and John uh, going up to the temple to pray around 3 p.m., the, the typical time of prayer in that day. It's an ordinary day that leads to an extraordinary activity. They meet an ordinary man with an ordinary request met with God's extraordinary grace. It's an ordinary thing. It's, it's a man begging in front of the temple. How often, even 2,000 years later, do we see this? Do we see people begging on the side of the road? And just like us, we can imagine that many religious people felt guilty, and so they put coins into his cup. Others maybe just walked on by and, and pretending that, that they didn't see him. But all of a sudden, we read that this man has hope. We're told that he receives an affirmation of his humanity in the form of a gaze from Peter and John. The man's expectation grows. We're told in verse 5 that he expected to receive something. And so Peter looks at him and he says, Listen, man, I don't have any money, but the one thing that I do have, the one thing on this earth that I do have, I am happy and willing to give to you. The man can barely process his hopes before he hears Peter saying, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Walk. And so this is undoubtedly the climax of the story. People in this day, and even us today, we, we, are, we are hearing this and we wonder what is going to happen. Wondering, is, are these words going to have any actual effect? And suddenly, they do. 
as this man begins to rise, people feel like they're watching the world being made all over again. We see in this man, Peter, the same God who said, let there be light, and there was. And in the same way, just like God, Peter speaks life into existence. And of course, this man can't help but get excited, right? I love this. He enters the temple with them, and his heart is overflowing, so that others can't help but see him. And they see him no longer as a burden, no longer as someone to be pitied, no longer as someone who is burdening them with his request. No, they see him as God sees him. It seems that the gate once called beautiful has been overshadowed by the beauty of this man's story. It seems that Jesus needs no temple, no physical location to do his work. He is fine with working outside the temple. It seems that the gospel really does know no bounds. In this, I think we see the beautiful harmony of the Christian life, especially in the early church. It was full of healing and proclaiming. It was full of loving God and loving people. It was full of hearing the word and doing the word. And so it is today. I believe that Luke records the story to show us that Jesus' followers proclaim Jesus. Jesus' followers, those who have prioritized Jesus, they hear the words of Jesus. They hear him say, go therefore and make disciples. And what do they say? Okay, this is now my number one priority. This is now what my life is all about. Not because it's a cool expression, but because of the one who said it. When Jesus speaks, people need to listen. And so Luke's recording the story that Jesus' followers proclaim Jesus. It's one of many sermons where Peter and others in the book of Acts are proclaiming the same message that Jesus himself proclaimed. And what is that message, you ask? It's the message that the kingdom of God is now available. The kingdom of God is now available to ordinary people, to all people. And that this Jesus, the one who was crucified 40 days earlier, this Jesus is now the key. He's the key. And so Peter's sermon has three key components that I want to to run through very, very quickly. Peter's sermon has three key components. We have an accusation in verses 11 through 16. We have an invitation in verses 17 through 21. And we have a complete reordering of life in verses 22 through 26. An accusation, an invitation, and a complete reordering. So if you look with me in verse 11, right off the bat, it seems that Peter needs to address something. Something is burning inside him. He he can't just let this miracle stand on its own. He needs to explain it. Because people are beginning to to gather in an area outside the temple known as Solomon's portico. And if you don't know what a portico is, uh, don't worry about it, neither do I. Uh, But he's got to clear something up. Because it seems like a great number of Jews were standing around. And it seems like their mouths were on the floor. Because Peter says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or, Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter's saying, do you honestly think that we could have done this? Do you, you know us. You know how weird we are. We're, we're, we're the Jesus people. Do you honestly think it was us? No, it wasn't us. We're certainly not good enough to make this happen. And we're certainly not strong enough to make this happen. And so Peter begins to transition away from himself and begin to point to Jesus. And that's what the rest of this sermon is all about. Pointing away from himself and pointing to Christ. And indeed, that is the basis of all evangelism. It is the basis of all evangelism to point away from ourselves and point to Jesus. And so what does he do? In verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. 
And so Peter boldly accuses them that it was the God that they claimed to serve. Get this now. It was the God who they claimed to serve that healed this man. But apparently they're not on the inside. Apparently they, they don't really understand this. Because he wasn't healed through animal sacrifice. He wasn't healed through ritual cleanliness. But he was healed through Jesus, the very one they conspired to put to death. And so as if this isn't bad enough, his accusation only grows. Look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. I want you to notice the beautiful parallels Peter is drawing here. He's saying the same man that you denied, the same man that you delivered, the same man that you unjustly accused, the same man that you conspired against, it's the same one that God has glorified. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Terrifying thought that the, a person that you betrayed now holds the keys to your fate. It's scary. That's a scary idea, and that's what Peter's getting across. He shows them how they chose shame over honor, how they chose death over life. It's this picture of, of killing the author of life that, that just really sticks with us. Uh, what an expression. You killed the author of life. Not only did they ask for a murderer to go free, but in so doing, they actually killed not just the one who gave them life, but the one who created life itself. Just this expression uh, this week, it made me think of an artist sketching a figure. An artist sketching a, a little stick figure. And as the stick figure becomes more and more realistic, it actually begins to rise up off the page. And certainly the artist, of course, he's like, wow, this is amazing. What in the world is going on here? This, this thing that I have created is jumping off the page. But suddenly the figure begins to grow and grow until the page can no longer contain it. And suddenly, like a boa constrictor, the figure grapples onto the arm of its artist, of its creator, until the breath of the artist is as faint as a whisper. And I imagine the figure leaning down to the creator who looks up and asks, why are you doing this? I created you. It's a gripping passage. So gripping because these men who rebel against their creator, these men who, these figures who rise up off the page, don't you see? It's you. And it's me. In our arrogance, we thought we knew better. For every person that chooses sin stands condemned against God. Sin in its purest essence is looking at God, looking at the good things that he is giving us and saying, no thanks. I know better. You, me, and in fact the entire world has rebelled against our creator. And now we deserve punishment. And so in this passage, we see Peter preaching Jesus. He builds him up not only as the lamb who was slain, but the lion who deserves justice. He proclaims Jesus as if to say, the one who you judge wrongly is about to judge you rightly. But here's where it gets good. In the gospel, there is always an accusation. In the gospel message, there is always a charge levied against you that, yes, you are a sinner, but he gives greater grace. That when we find ourselves crippled, when we find ourselves looking up at Jesus, begging him for mercy, we find out that the lion is a lion, lion of justice, but he is also a lion of great mercy. That he chose the cross, taking our sin upon us so that we might repent and have new life. 
And what follows are three levels of gospel that Peter introduces to these people. Three levels of good news in light of this accusation. So now let's go away from the accusation to the invitation. In verse, 15, in verse 17, we see a clear shift, don't we? Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And so this is good news number one, that although we sin, God had a plan. Although you rebelled, God is greater. He had a plan. He tells these men the good news that although what they did was heinous, it was vile, it was unforgivable, it was in fact God's plan to bring sinners into his kingdom through that act. Good news number two. Look at verse uh, 19. He says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. What does that mean? <laughs> I asked myself that question this week. What does it mean to like blot something out? It's not really language we use. Um, uh, when I heard the word blotted out, I, I thought he was talking about like, you know, kind of using whiteout to cover something up. Uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't great at math, and so I would get a math problem wrong over and over again until my eraser shavings were so dark that you couldn't see what's on the page. And so I actually had to use whiteout to cover it up and, and, and to start fresh. Well, apparently these people didn't have whiteout because uh, I found out this week that this word is actually most closely associated, not with the idea of covering something up, but with the idea of destruction, with the idea of erasing something entirely or even obliterating something from the page. It was often used with writing on wax tablets. When you wanted to erase something, specifically something that was legally binding, uh, you would blot out the tablet and make it brand new. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't just cover my sin. Because something that's covered can be uncovered, doesn't it? I, I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't just cover my sin and sort of hold it over my head saying, hey, you better behave or, or I'm going to bring it back. No, Jesus completely destroys my sin. He goes to the cross and he puts his sin in his body and his body is destroyed and therefore my sin is destroyed. You see, Christians are not those who are good at covering their own sin. They're not people who have just gamed the system and have gotten really good at shifting the blame to another group of people or, or, or a family member or a friend. No, Christians are people who aren't blame shifters, but they're people who ask for help. Asking for help, asking for our sins to be blotted out. Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So good news number one, God is sovereign. Good news number two, if we repent, our sins will be blotted out. And now good news number three, Let's look at, I believe it's, it's verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And so our third and final good news comes in the form of an invitation of grace. That although we have sinned, although we have rebelled, although we have spit in the face of God, he invites us to repent this passage is beautiful for a number of reasons. I mean, the idea that these men who put Jesus to death, the idea that they are worthy of his grace, if they are worthy of his grace, there is truly no one here that is unworthy. 
But the most beautiful and significant passage, part of this passage is that it displays the heart of God for faith and repentance. And so just as this cripple was saved by faith in the Lord Jesus, these men were invited to share in that same faith. You see, in the Bible and in the book of Acts specifically, these ideas of faith and repentance are always intertwined. They've been called two sides of the same coin. And it goes something like this. If I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, my entire life will be reordered. If I genuinely believe that Jesus is the cosmic king who not only created my body, but created this entire world, and there's nothing he can ask me to do that is too great. Discipleship, as we have said before, is the complete reordering of your life around a person. And that person is Jesus. So that my life is no longer about me, but it is solely about him and his kingdom. To be a follower of Jesus is to live this out, to proclaim him in every season and every situation that he puts us in, with our words, with our deeds, and our very lives. And so, so far we've covered a lot. So far, Luke and Peter have teamed up to show us that in the gospel there is an accusation of sin, but there's also an invitation to grace. And finally, we'll see that the gospel reorders our lives around Jesus. It's proclamation that comes out of giving Jesus priority. In verses 22 to 26, and in fact, this entire sermon, Peter is testifying to one simple fact. Jesus is king. Pastor Mike talked about this last week, that Jesus has all authority everywhere, that Jesus owns the room, and this has actual consequences for the way in which we conduct our lives. And in verses 22 to 26, Peter used the prophets to testify to Jesus' authority. Let's look at verse 22. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I'm not sure why, but this week, this aspect of, of listening to Jesus really caught my attention. I glossed over it first, but God brought me back to this verse over and over again. And, and I just started repeating it out loud like a crazy person. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Listen to him in whatever he tells you. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. I think this is especially relevant in our day and age. There's so many voices. There's so many people. There's so many people who are putting themselves out in the world and on the internet saying, hey, you should conduct your life. You should make it all about me. And so I just want to ask a very simple, but I think a very important question this morning. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? And I'm not talking about sermons. I'm not talking about preaching. I'm talking about who is that person in your life who's saying, this is my teacher. This is the person I am modeling everything after. Who are you listening to? Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a, a politician. Maybe it's someone on YouTube. Maybe it's not like a person, but it's like an idea. Maybe like a parent's approval or just wanting to fit in with your group of friends. 
Maybe it's the communal voice of a social media platform like Facebook saying, if you don't act like us, you are not of us. I'm not asking what do you simply do you believe, but what is your life and why are you living it? Who are you listening to? Because that will determine everything. And I don't think anyone knew this quite like Peter, quite like the person who spoke these words originally. Words are important, but so are actions, and Peter had both. I don't think any one of us could accuse Peter of being the type of person who believes one thing and acts like another. He walked with Jesus. He trusted Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He failed Jesus. He was restored by Jesus. And in fact, he was commissioned and sent by Jesus. Yes, from the day that Peter met Jesus, his entire life was reordered. So that when, when, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, he doesn't say, okay, when I get around to it. He doesn't say, okay, let me, let me go tend to this first. He says, okay, that is now the number one priority of my life. That is now what my life is all about. What makes Peter so special is not that he was the perfect disciple, but that his heart for Jesus was undivided. His heart for Jesus was undivided. His love was pure, and it was pointed in one direction. And so if you were to ask Peter this question, who are you listening to? Wouldn't have been a hard one. He would have pointed and said, Jesus of Nazareth, that's my God, that's my King, that's the one who I want to be like. He knew that to be a disciple was to, above all, listen to Jesus. Matthew 14, 21 says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so at the beginning I said that we are, we, what we are like as Christians is more important than what we do as Christians. Because what we are like will inform what we do. The, the why always leads to the what and so a Christian that goes through the motions of evangelism and just treats God as a checklist is not one that he's looking for. As with everything, God is looking at the heart. Does Jesus have your heart? Can you honestly look at your life and say that he is your number one priority? I'm only 26 years old, but trust me, uh, just working at different churches, I've seen a lot of evangelistic efforts get started. I've had a lot of friends uh, get excited about evangelism at the beginning of the year only for it to last until February. I've seen a lot of people, myself included, recommit themselves to evangelism over and over again. But from my personal experience, those who, who evangelize, those who actually go therefore and make disciples, are not the ones who get really excited. They're the ones who make a concerted effort to make Jesus number one in their lives. We must prioritize Jesus in our private lives before we can begin to proclaim him in our public lives. And while this may seem like I'm being negative, I want you to know that this is actually a great positive. My goal up here isn't, isn't to squelch any enthusiasm you might have to evangelize. No, the exact opposite. Because if we're honest, so many of us are burned out by this cycle. We're burned out by the burden of being told to share our faith. We know that we're supposed to share our faith. And if we're honest, we often do it out of guilt, and we don't do it out of love. We do it out of fear that God might not love us as much if we don't talk about him. But Peter's life bears witness to the fact that there is a better way to share Jesus, and it's with our entire lives. That it's not a tract, it's not a secret tip to evangelism that we get out of a book or an article. No, it's with our entire lives. 
that if we continue to focus on cultivating our love for him, talking about him will be as natural as breathing. And so I want to ask this morning, in your heart, is Jesus one of one or is he one of many? Has Jesus changed your priorities? Has he changed the way you value your life? This is not something we're ever going to be perfect at. It's something that we're continually going to be growing at. But I want this morning to possibly be an opportunity for you to mark the line in the sand saying, this is where it stops. This is where I put to death everything else in my life that is keeping me from the face of God. And so let's share our faith. But let's not just share it to get Jesus off our back. Let's proclaim the gospel, but not just to feel good about ourselves. Let's evangelize as a result of Jesus being our number one priority. Let's pray, and then let's share the Lord's Supper together. Father, uh, this is a hard word, especially for myself. God, I know that in my own heart I have so much work to do in making you a priority. God, if I'm honest, my life is, is so frequently about myself. My life is so frequently about my own comforts uh, and my own uh, drive and my own desire for success. God, I pray for repentance in my own heart. I pray for repentance for, for every person here. I pray, God, if there's someone that doesn't know you, that, that they could take away the, the wonderful news about your grace, that although we have sinned, that although we are rightly accused, you have extended grace to us in the person of your Son, Jesus. God, we love you, and we pray that we would be disciples who make disciples. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.